This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are here with Allison Josephs, Jew in the city. How are you, Allison? I'm doing well. I've got some coffee, so I'm awake or waking up, so I'm doing okay. How about you? Fabulous. Doing great and really grateful that you're joining us. I've been fascinated in your entire journey and in so much of what you've done. In many ways, I think some of your mission might parallel what I'm trying to accomplish on this podcast, which is to expose the broader world to fascinating, inspiring Jewish figures. And I want to get into that and I want to hear more about the genesis of Jew in the City and what you're accomplishing. But in order to understand that more fully, I'd like to first step back and get a sense of your own background. Where are you coming from? What what was your upbringing like, Jewish and otherwise? Give us a sense of your personal biography. I was raised to be very proud to be Jewish. I grew up in New Jersey, right outside of Manhattan. On one hand, we weren't very observant, so we did the major holidays. We're told we had to marry Jewish, even date Jewish. And why? Because of the Holocaust and the pogroms and the Spanish Inquisition. My mom would like go all the way back, really, <laughs> thick. But then we were supposed to marry the Jewish guy to eat bacon cheeseburgers with him. Like... You, they wouldn't want us to like get too into it. You had to be Jewish enough, but not too Jewish. And while I was proud to be Jewish and had some sort of sense about Jewish continuity, the religious ones were crazy and extreme and backwards, and I wanted no part in that. But I was raised otherwise with a very happy and privileged and loving environment. It sounds like you grew up in a pretty loving and stable home, and one with Jewish pride and, and strong Jewish feelings, but not the most positive representation of more religious or observant segments of the community which I think is not terribly uncommon and something did change at some point for you in your own personal journey. Did you go off to college, meet someone? What, what happened for you that you became more open to some of these ideas and ultimately transformed some of your own Jewish practices? It did not happen, I guess, in the most typical way. A lot of times people start a Jewish journey because they meet a Jewish educator somewhere. I mean, that part of the story did come in eventually, but I first was left with a hole that I needed to fill. And that was in the form of a tragedy in my childhood. A father of one of my classmates when I was eight years old went crazy, killed both of his kids and himself. And when I got to school the Monday morning after the triple murder took place and my classmates were crying and I asked what's wrong and they said, Angela was shot last night. Is she okay? She's dead. I was launched into something pretty big. It wasn't just like, oh, there's, you know, uh, a tragedy and my life moved on. It felt very personal, even though she wasn't a good friend. She was a, a girl in the grade above me that I looked up to that, you know, kind of nice to the nerdy girls like me. But it became very personal because I started to consider my own mortality at all of eight years old. And I realized that when a kid dies at 10, it means that a kid like me could die at eight. And it meant that I would have to go somewhere for all of eternity, either somewhere or nowhere. And I didn't know what you do when you got there. I didn't know what you bring with you when you leave here. And I didn't know what even I was doing here in the first place. And as I said earlier, I was raised in this happy, loving, successful home. And my parents had an answer for everything. How to be a good friend, how to have a good marriage, how to do well in school, how to save money. They had all these valuable life lessons. And when I approached them a few days after this tragedy happened, asking them, by the way, where's the section in your manual? 
manual on why are we alive, they just stared back at me. And this was a really troubling discovery to make at such a young age because these people were supposed to know what they were doing here and I couldn't figure out how could you bring three children into existence if you don't know what you're living for in the first place. And then the scary thing was I went out to the world to talk to everyone else in my small eight-year-old world and none of my teachers, friends, relatives had any idea why they were alive too. And the best answer that people could give me was don't think about it, Allison, nobody knows. And I sort of felt like, this is insane. Why, why am I the only one bothered by this? It's a pretty intense reaction for an eight-year-old, I have to say. What do you think about your personal makeup, your own constitution, so to speak, triggered this kind of a response when ostensibly your peers, your friends around you cried and then moved on? I've definitely always been a more philosophical person. I was a philosophy major. I think my father also, I get this from him, kind of like stay up late at night and thinking about the universe, the infinity of the universe, just like some big thoughts like that. I also have a tendency to sort of go to the end of the logical conclusion. So I was not popular in school. I remember one of my friends had a crush on this boy for like years of high school. And then she finally, you know, they started going out, but like he was graduating in a couple months. I'm like, that's dumb that you started dating. You know, what's going to happen in two months when he goes to college? And she was like, oh, how could you say this? And I was like, but hello, like, where's this going? So everyone else was kind of more thing living in the moment and living for now. And I can't take any credit for these thoughts. Truthfully, I would have been much happier if I had been able to sleep better at night or if I didn't have the panic attacks that I got. When I spoke in one location, a rabbi gave an intro, which I thought was kind of interesting. He said that there is a passage in the Talmud, which says that there is an echo from Har Sinai, from Mount Sinai, that reverberates in the minds or the hearts of certain people. And he said, the woman you're about to hear from heard sort of the call of Sinai. And I thought that that was like, oh, so that was that voice in my head that wouldn't leave me alone. Right. But this is just how I've been. And I worked hard to stay distracted. I was in every extracurricular activity you could imagine. I had a lot of friends. I was busy with my schoolwork. I did all the stuff that normal people do to stay busy. Just at the end of the day, the worst part for me during the about eight years after the tragedy happened was late at night when the noises stopped and the distractions stopped. I was confronted with this voice again. Why does anything you do today matter? Why will anything you do tomorrow matter? You'll just be gone one day and nothing comes with you. Has that single-minded intensity that taking things to their logical end, has that ever given you difficulty? Has that ever created problems for you? I mean, it created problems for me in the time because I didn't have an answer. I would say right now how I take that as an observant Jew. Look, obviously I'm not perfect. I make mistakes, but I'm very much of the mind that I have to try my best to strive to keep everything, even if I'm not my best self all the time. It pushes me to not make excuses. Again, it doesn't protect me from being perfect. I still lose my temper. I still speak Lashon Hara. I still make all the normal mistakes that people that try to be good make, but I try not to make excuses. And I think it's because I sort of see the logical end of this process that if I believe that this is why I'm alive, then I have to do my best to take this seriously and do it for real. So it sounds like eventually you did find some answers, at least answers that quieted your existentially troubled mind at some point. What was that? When was that? 
So I had about eight years, like I said, of this uh, minor insomnia and I know off and on panic attack. And then when I was 16, my parents sent my sisters and me to this after school Hebrew high. We were sent to like a prep school during the day so that we could get into an Ivy League college. That was sort of the meaning of my life, according to my parents. You know, go to Ivy League, marry a guy, make money, have three kids, buy a big house, do all the same things that you just did and then, you know, get buried six feet under and it's all gone. So I was on the Ivy League track in terms of my secular studies, but there weren't that many Jews there. So my parents sent my sisters and me to an after school at Hebrew High. And in this Hebrew High School, there were some Orthodox teachers. It was the first time in my life that I actually saw Orthodox Jews up close and personal. I'd only just seen them on the streets of New York City as I walked past them. And a class that really caught my attention and my interest was a class called Taoism and Pirkei Avos. And and I didn't really care about this Ethics of the Father's Jewish book, because like, who cares about rabbis? But this Tao Te Ching book written by Chinese people, I figured there's going to be some wisdom there. And the thing is that I came for the Chinese, and then I stayed for the Jewish. The first time that I was studying Jewish text, and it was deep and beautiful. And I spent my first Shabbos at this teacher's house. It was Teaneck, New Jersey, a modern Orthodox community. But in my mind, I thought this was like the most ultra-Orthodox place you could go to. Be. But it opened up my eyes to something new that I was expecting this guy to be a rock-throwing extremist. And in fact, he was just actually like a normal, regular guy living in the world, trying to make the world a better place, open-minded, educated, treated his wife well. So he had everything that I had, but then he had something I didn't have. He had meaning. He had Shabbos. He prayed. He believed in something bigger than himself. And I felt like, how come I didn't know about this before? Like, why didn't I know about the place where you can be like a good, normal, open-minded person, plus have all the stuff that was missing from my secular life? And so studying in his class kind of got me started on my own journey and pushed me to consider what these observances and rituals might look like for myself. So where did you go from there? So I started to slowly grow on my own before I'd even met any other observant Jews. Um, I mean, there's a, a bit of a, a detour where my family took a trip to Hawaii. I saw a tree and sort of in a moment, from one moment to the next, I went from not thinking I believed in God to being quite sure there was a God. Sort of in a moment, just somehow I knew that there was a oneness of all of the universe. I first thought that this tree, which looked like it had been painted on, got that way because of an artist painting the trees in the forest. They were so beautiful. When I looked to the top and saw the color continued all the way to the top, literally from one moment to the next, I knew that there was a higher power than me. And I believe what I perceived was I sort of got one layer deeper into reality. And I perceived unity running throughout everything. And after this moment of clarity happened, I realized this must be what we mean when we say God. And it was just such an incredible, I've never done any drugs in my life, but it was the highest high I ever experienced. And I felt like I wanted to get this feeling back again, I want to try to connect with this feeling again. And this teacher seemed really smart. And I felt like I want to try mitzvot as a vehicle to try to get this feeling back again. At first, I was thinking I'm going to just try sitting in the woods a lot, see if any more trees strike my fancy. But I realized I wanted to work with a system and see if a system could help me make more of a connection or a relationship. And so slowly, slowly in my preppy, very not Jewish high school, I started to grow in my observance. And I was doing it basically alone. I had basically no community. So it was a little bit isolated. For me, Shabbos was just trying to not touch buttons in my house. Phones would ring and the timers would buzz and I would just try to not touch anything. And I started connecting at the end of high school. My first Shabbaton, my first sort of weekend away with other religious Jewish kids was the weekend of my senior prom, Memorial Day weekend of 1997. And I had already been keeping Shabbos for months at that point, just all alone. And I had met a girl in the town next to me 
I told her of my dilemma that the prom is coming up. It's on Shabbos. My friends all think I've lost my mind. My family all thinks I've lost my mind. Um, I'm all alone and being all alone prom weekend seems extra sad. She said, oh, we're doing the Shabbat's home. Come with us along to it. So I get on a bus. I drive up to the mountains in upstate New York and I'm surrounded by 300 yarmulkes and skirts. And I'm like, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. What did I get myself into? And over the course of the Shabbos, they kept mentioning a relationship with that thing that I knew that I wanted to relationship with. And by Shalshida's time, I actually just got up out of the room and started bawling my eyes out. I ran out because I realized that this is where I belonged. These people that wanted God in their lives, these were my people, but I had no idea how to get to that place where they were. I had no idea how they could ever understand where I came from. I had no idea how I could ever explain to the people where I came from, where I was going. I didn't see how to bridge those two worlds, but I knew in that moment that I had to. And I came back to school on Tuesday after Memorial Day weekend and my classmates had been off doing prom type activities and I had been spending the weekend. The theme of the Shabbos was Kedusha, about separating yourself and sort of focusing on holiness. And I felt different. I sort of felt distinctly different from that moment on from where I had been. And so that was the beginning of it. That must have created quite a disconnect emotionally, returning to school in that environment and looking around and knowing that they hadn't experienced what you just had experienced. You must have felt alone in that moment. I definitely did. I found actually that some of my non-Jewish friends were the most supportive of my spiritual journey because I think for the Jewish ones, it was too threatening. And so I had some good Catholic friends that we could talk about God and faith and divine providence. We could sort of share those ideas together. Whereas for the Jews, the connection was about the bagels and the gefilte fish and the Holocaust and Israel. But matters of faith and deep religious thought was not part of their, it wasn't part of my upbringing either. And frankly, I didn't mean for it to be. It's just that these questions got me thinking and got me troubled. And so I started to seek answers. And the way that I grew in my observance, I like to joke about it. I did the easiest things first. So it would be a Friday night and I'd be watching television and my mom would tell me, Allison, go do your homework. And I'd be like, mother, on the Holy Sabbath? <laughs> and she'd say to me, but you're watching TV. What do you mean the Holy And I'd say, well, I haven't given up TV watching yet on Shabbos. That's too hard for me. But homework, I don't do that on Shabbos anymore. And then on Shabbos day, people would be cleaning the house and <laughs> I would be on the phone. And she'd be like, Allison, get off the phone. You're on the vacuum right now. Go do the floors. And I'd be like, mother, on the Lord's day of rest, are you kidding? <laughs> I don't clean on Shabbos. I don't vacuum on Shabbos or any other day. And she'd say, but you're still on the phone. And I'd say, well, I haven't given up the phone yet on Shabbos. That's too hard for me, but I don't clean. I don't vacuum. And so I found that there's a principle, mitzvah goreris mitzvah, that one mitzvah leads to another. And so I found that for me to start with the easiest things, meaning I didn't like doing homework or vacuuming anyway, so I'll just give those up officially for Shabbos, and then I'll hold on to the harder things and not give them up quite yet. It laid a pathwork for me where I was able to do it in time. I could get rid of the easier stuff first, knock those off the list, and then in time, I was more prepared to give up the harder stuff. I'm so curious how your parents reacted to this process. You're a teenager, high schooler. Your father clearly had some strong opinions, some strong uh, perceptions, misperceptions, whatever they might be. He, he had his misgivings. How did they or he react? I would really credit my mother with laying our strong Jewish identity and foundation. She had a religious grandmother and grandfather, Ababa and Zeta, she called them. Her grandmother wore a wig. They spoke only Yiddish. They had long satyrs. That was sort of like, you know, her definition of like, it was the real deal. It was really long. So she had these positive associations with observance. And as we were growing up, although she raised us eating shrimp and bacon and cheeseburgers and all that stuff, 
every so often she'd be like, kids, should we start keeping kosher? And we'd be like, what does that mean? She'd be like, no chicken parmesan, no uh, bacon cheeseburgers. And I remember thinking, God, no, why would you ever do that? And for the eight days of Pesach that we would actually check labels and only eat food that was marked kosher for Pesach, it was the greatest torture to me. And the only thing that would sort of save me was I get to be normal in six days, five days, four days, but like those poor Orthodox Jews, they never get to be normal. So she did try her best to instill some sort of pride and identity, but she didn't exactly know too much about it herself. And she was my most supportive person in the family. Although when I would misbehave, the way that I got grounded in high school was to get Shabbos taken away from me. I mean, that's like really the definition of being cool that your mother literally grounds you. No Shabbos this week, little girl. Like literally, that was how cool my life was. In terms of my father, he was probably my biggest dissenter. He thought that I was becoming Hasidic because, again, he didn't really understand the difference between one community and the other. And he told me that I'm becoming a zealot. And he told me I'm becoming an extremist. And I would tape the lights around the house on Shabbos. So I would have light. I would untwist the light bulb in the fridge so I could go into it. He would go around the house and screw the bulb in, take the tapes off. This is my house. These are my bulbs. And because he pushed me, I pushed back at him. And I basically told him I have no opinion about morality because I'm not a doctor and I would never speak about that issue. And so too, you should have no opinion about Judaism because you know nothing. He didn't even go to Hebrew school because his mom would drop him off. He hated it so much. He would hide next to the Hebrew school where the row houses of Philadelphia. They had like the dryer exhaust pipes coming out. Apparently he and his friend would sit there for two hours keeping warm under the exhaust pipe. And just before the cars would come out for carpool, they'd run through the bushes and pop out again. So I said to him, if you think I'm ruining my life and the life of your unborn grandchildren, then please save me, but I won't listen to you until you educate yourself. So learn what I learned, meet who I meet, come for Shabbos where I do, and then argue it from the inside. And when we can have a dialogue, he didn't want to do it, he didn't want to do it. And he eventually came to realize that there's nothing positive or laudatory about remaining ignorant. So he began to study in order to spite me. And after about a year of study, as he was approaching 50 years old, he came up to me one day and he said, I mocked it, I made fun of it. And it was here all along under my nose. And now it's time to play catch up. And he and my mother and both of my sisters all became observant and moved to Israel. Oh my goodness, that's quite a story. With that background in mind, Allison, at some point you came to a point where you were not satisfied simply with your own personal growth or your own personal bubble of Jewish observance, but somehow you wanted to broadcast that. You wanted to help others learn about what you hadn't perhaps. Tell me about that journey and what was the genesis of what became Jew in the City at some point? When I said to you what I discovered about this Hebrew high teacher back when I was 16, that he lived this normal, balanced, educated life, but then had something that I was missing. When I stumbled upon that and I discovered that, it added so much to my life. And I actually felt like I had been robbed of something. I had been given every privilege. I was given top-notch education. I had all sorts of tutoring to help me do better on all of my standardized tests. And my parents put everything they could into growing us as children and shaping us. And yet this was missing this wisdom and this meaning. And I felt like every Jew should get a chance to know what this is about. And I sort of looked to what was it that kept this information from Jews in our generation, at least getting that chance to learn about their heritage in a meaningful and in-depth way. So really, as soon as I discovered it for myself and shared it with my family, I felt like I have a responsibility now to get the word out to the rest of my brethren. And so I started in college working in different outreach organizations 
organizations, NCSY. Where did you go to college? Columbia University. So there were a lot of Jews there. And before Maor was around, there was something called Stars of David, which was a campus outreach program. So we organized Shabbatons and classes, and I brought people along to those as well. My first job out of college was at Partners in Torah. I spoke to 3,000 birthright alumni over five years. And I think really the genesis of Jew in the City was some unknowing research that I was doing at Partners in Torah. Again and again, the same misconceptions would come up where a woman would say to me, I had a great time in Israel and I would want to become more observant, but I want to have a career. And I knew that if I became Orthodox, I wouldn't be able to work. And I would say to her, really, what commandment is that? Or I would talk to a guy who would tell me, I feel so inspired after this trip and I kind of want to keep growing in my Judaism. But when we went to this really religious neighbor, they threw garbage on us. And I had to explain that's not really religious. Those are people maybe that are dressed religious, but that's not religious behavior. And I would be repeating myself over and over. But I wasn't putting these pieces together until about almost 12 years ago. A guy that I knew from the outreach world had seen a posting on Craigslist. There was a journalist visiting from Spain working on a story in Brooklyn. And she was noticing all these Orthodox Jews around. And she had never seen them in Spain because, hello, they kicked us out of their country. So they gave us the message we weren't wanted. And she posted on Craigslist, would an Orthodox woman sit down with me so I can do an article about your community and heritage? So this guy saw the post and he said, quick, right back before some crazy person does. She came over the next day. And from the moment that she saw our apartment, our mustard colored walls and our funky furniture and me come out. And after about three hours of talking, I saw that her perspective on the community had completely changed. And I said to my husband, we are doing the worst job at PR. People see us as the most extreme cases of our community. And they don't see all the good and normal and moderate stuff that does, just doesn't get reported on. And I started thinking about how people do acts of kindness quite quietly. It's considered a higher level and doing successful things in terms of one's career. People generally try to stay more under the radar. And I felt like our brand has really been hijacked by the crooks, creeps, and extremists of our community. And we need to take it back. And I felt like maybe I need to start this campaign to rebrand orthodoxy. And then I said to myself, how do you do a campaign to rebrand orthodoxy? And right around that time, YouTube was becoming popular. And as a child, as I was worried about my death and the end and infinity, I had had a much more shallow side to myself that was wondering when is the Hollywood agent going to discover me and put me on my own show because I had this uh, strange idea that that was bound to happen sooner or later. It never happened. And so I never got on uh, network television, but suddenly with YouTube, you could broadcast yourself. And I put that silly or more shallow side of myself, like my name should be in lights or I should be up on a screen. I put that away. Like there's nothing to do with that side of yourself. And then I realized that this is part of how God made me that I do have a presence. I mean, Jerry Seinfeld has a joke that more people are afraid of public speaking than dying. So more people would rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. I'm not that person. I've always been drawn to the spotlight. It's not really a very nice quality. A higher level is quietly operating behind the scenes, but that's not my makeup. I'm someone that naturally is drawn to the spotlight. And since that is who I am, and since I know that I can explain these concepts in an eloquent way, in a way that is meaningful to people, that touches people, instead of trying to fight who I am, realize that I could take this new platform on YouTube, I could take my natural makeup, and I could use it as a vehicle to share something important with the world. And instead of on the phone one by one, giving over these explanations 3000 times to partners and Torah students, I could say one message one time and have it get watched 300,000 times. Social media hadn't even really been invented yet when I was conceiving of this orthodox image makeover campaign. But as social media developed, Jew in the City developed with it. So first it was you 
YouTube. And then as I was trying to figure out who was going to film some more videos after our initial ones, I hopped onto a blog and then Facebook and then Twitter and then Instagram. And it went from me alone. And I quit my job while we had three kids. My husband was in his last year of law school. And I told him when I came up with this idea, I have no seed money. I have no business plan. I don't even know what it is I really want to do because again, social media hadn't been invented yet. So I just sort of knew that something was happening that I could grow with without exactly knowing what architecture for it would be. But I said, I think I can change the world. Do you mind going broke for a while? Can we live off of credit cards? Can we take out more loans? And he said, go for your dreams. So with that, I quit my job as the sole supporter of our family of five. And I had many meetings of one in the early days. But as I started getting the word out more, I started collecting different volunteers, interns, advisors. And then a few years ago, we became an official nonprofit. I know that a lot of what Jew in the City has done has been to highlight people in the broader Jewish community who have embraced Jewish ideals while also succeeding significantly in their careers. How did that evolve? It seems like there's a yearly awards list. What's that about? So it's the Orthodox Jewish All-Star Awards. For me, it was making a list. What misconceptions and stereotypes do I need to break down? How am I going to pay for it? What topics need to be covered? And how will we make that content? So I had in mind for a while, I wanted to confront the stereotype that women aren't allowed to work. In fact, it's so broad and so widespread that I was interviewed by a reporter from the Daily Beast who wanted a quote from me about what part of Jewish law prevents women from working. And I thought this is great publicity for Jew in the city. And I picked up the phone. I said, none. And she said, what do you mean? Orthodox women don't work. And I said, of course we do. And she said, no, you don't. I said, that's not true. We do. And she's arguing with me, even though I'm supposed to be the expert in my community. And she says to me, well, fine. What do they do? Run shops? And I said, yeah, some run shops and some run companies and law firms and medical practices. And she tells me maybe my secular bias is getting in the way. So I knew I needed to confront the women are not allowed to work misunderstanding. And there was a second one about men. There is this weird idea that all men are rabbis. And I think it's because when you see a guy in a beard and a hat and like, you know, black and white, it sort of has a rabbinic feel to it. So for instance, my husband was raised Lubavitch. And when my father-in-law and mother-in-law were visiting, one of my next door neighbors saw him walking around on Shabbos. And she said, who's the rabbi visiting? I said, he works in computers. But again, we sort of see those visual cues and we think that's rabbinic. So I wanted to clarify that men can do things other than be rabbis. Not that there's anything wrong with being a rabbi. I was going to say, nothing wrong with a rabbi, right? <laughs> so I decided let's do a video to show all the things that people can do. And once we're doing a video about all the things you can do, let's show people who were the most successful at the things that they can do. So I figured probably I should get Joe Lieberman in my video. He would be a good example of super success. And then maybe the Maccabees and then Amir Goodman, the first professional basketball player and Dimitri Salida, the professional boxer. Let's talk to Jamie Geller when she was at HBO and how they bent over backwards to accommodate Chavez and Yom Tov and all those sorts of things. So I did a lot of outreach and we got these 10 people in our first video and they sort of weave together a script about all the things they're able to accomplish, how just Ruth Bader Ginsburg bent over backwards to accommodate her Shomer Shabbos Supreme Court clerk, how Joe Lieberman believes that his observance has given people respect of him in his political career. And we had just finished filming the Maccabees, which is like, we're having fun. And I said to my head intern, that was so much fun. We should have a reunion. And she said, let's throw a launch party. And I said, cool. How do you throw a launch party? And so with most things that I've done, I just kind of put it out there. So I posted on Facebook. It would be so fun to do a launch party for our video. And a woman wrote in and said, I'm a party planner. Let's make a party. So in about 
about six weeks, we threw this premiere party for the All-Stars. We had the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, New York Post show up. We had like 250 people and it was this amazing, inspiring night. With the guests? So the problem was that because we did it in six weeks, guests were so busy. We only had the Maccabees and Dimitri Salida there. It just wasn't enough notice. But we premiered the movie. I'm saying the Maccabees sung. Dimitri Salida spoke about... You know, <laughs> he grew up in Russia, so he spoke about the freedom of being able to be a Jew in America and living openly and freely Jewish life and how we shouldn't take it for granted. It was coincided with Hanukkah and we compared that to the freedoms that were taken away from Jews. But it was such a successful event and concept that my husband said, do this every year, open up nominations to the public. And so that's when it started to become a, a more public type of thing where we asked people in the larger world, who do you know that's kind of been in hiding? Our next all-star event is on the calendar. One of our all-stars this year is the vice president and treasurer of Ford Motor Company, a man named Neil Schloss. So Henry Ford's money is being managed by Shomer Shabbos Jew. So God willing, on Sunday, November 5th in New York City, we will be having our fifth annual All-Star Awards. Have you encountered any pushback, any sense from people that, hey, you're only showing the outliers, the superstars, and you're not showing the failures, or not even the failures, just the common man, that these are the exceptions, and you're kind of using the exceptions to prove the rule, or has that not been an issue? Uh, no, when you're on the internet, you hear from everyone. So look, we have heard that, and the thing is that we also, as our content got beefed up, as we had more capacity, more funding, and the capacity to create more content, we now can do stories about, I don't want to say like regular people, because anyone that we're highlighting has done something interesting or special. Right. It's just that we made our all-star awards around professional success. Now, why did we do that? Because people are shallow. It's just the reality. We value professional success. We value fame. And when someone has those things and then they have the integrity and conviction to either hold on to their Jewish observance if they were raised with it or grow and take that on and make that sort of their structure of their life, we think it's really laudatory. And actually in last year's all-star awards, I found a, a source in the Torah to prove my point that this is just a thing that makes Jews happy. If you go back to the Purim story, the Jews have just been saved from essentially the Holocaust in an instant from being on the bottom. Now they're in control and that doesn't bring joy to the people. It's not until they see Mordechai basically second in command to the king dressed in his royal robes that the Megillah tells us that the Jews had light and happiness and delighted. And we say that now every single week that as the week begins as we go from the break of Shabbos back into we're going to go into the world now and to work and to change. That is the thing that we're reminded of, that you can be that Jewish all-star. You can attain this kind of success and notoriety and remain true to your Jewish values. And so I think that there's just this undeniable joy that Jews have by seeing one of their own in a position of success. And so we don't try to fight that. We acknowledge that openly and we use that as a vehicle to celebrate Jewish values and also to be thankful for countries that allow Jews to, to practice openly like that. In terms of, do you only highlight the good stuff? When you highlight the good, you end up hearing from people that have experienced the bad. And so I would say that our content over the years now has gotten more nuanced in terms of acknowledging the challenges within the Orthodox community. And our approach is still hopeful. Our approach is still, this is a problem and these people are working to fix it, or this is a problem and let's try to find a way to make things better. And I think that we do do a disservice when we don't acknowledge or talk about the problems. I would say in my defense, I had an experience 
experienced so many problems, I really did have and have had by and large a very positive experience. And that's what I was putting out through these channels. But when I put out my good news, nothing drags in bad news like people who say good news. That's when people come out and say, oh yeah, well, how about this, this, and this? And I would say that hearing from these people have made me confront and learn more about the things that need to change. And we now actually have developed some sort of behind the scenes <laughs> advocacy. We're working with some of the leaders in the Orthodox community to bring them back the behaviors or dysfunctional things that are causing some of those negative headlines in the first place. And I basically said to them, don't make us into liars. We're going to keep getting bad headlines and negativity unless we fix the root of the problem. And so that's sort of a way that we have shifted to this more information, hearing a more nuanced side of the story. It sounds to me like really a, a maturation process where the child begins their journey. They see their parents as perfect. They grow and inevitably they see that their parents are human. And then hopefully they grow to a point where they can appreciate the overall picture and how the positive can outweigh the negative, but doesn't dismiss the negative, so to speak, and acknowledges it and brings it into the worldview. You know, unfortunately, as, as you referenced, there are times, whether scandals, moments when the more observant community is cast into a negative light. How do you feel when you encounter those stories? When you see, unfortunately, a headline or a front page news story showing a really ugly side of a community that you love? Yeah, it's really <laughs> disheartening. So a few board members and I have a Facebook group where we share negative headlines with each other just to sort of like cry together. Oh no, another one. That was sort of what we did at first to support each other. Good God, what do we do? What we've done in the last few years now is we've now said, what can we do? How do we get proactive? Meaning it's not really just about looking good. It's about being good. And unfortunately for these scandals where there's smoke, there's fire. It's not just, oh, this bad thing happened. For a lot of these things, this is ongoing dysfunction or bad behavior that need to get confronted. And what I would say is we're not doing this publicly. We're not picketing with picket signs. I think we've developed in our almost 10 years of existence of a brand that people know that we're here to show the good. And I think we have a power in that that we can go to these rabbis behind the scenes and say, how can this continue to happen? Gives you a credibility, so to speak. Credibility to say, we're not coming to you to tear down. We're coming to you to build up and to help people. And this can't go on. And I think that we have a unique way to push. It's safer for successful Orthodox Jews to stay quiet and it's safer for rabbis to stay quiet. Don't make waves. Don't step into the fray. But if we come and say this is really hurting people, this can't continue. These are not Jewish values. This is maybe what has developed into the norm, but we now need to question the norm and push back at the norm. I've seen we have been successful at getting rabbis to speak up on issues, take a stand. And then while we can't fix the entire community, my hope is that we can show people that there are leaders to look to. And I think one of the biggest issues that makes people feel disillusioned is feeling like there's no leadership or nobody cares to speak out against the problems. And I've even spoken to the leaders of the Jewish community about why do you need to say it officially? Oh, everybody knows that honesty is the right thing. Oh, everybody knows that X, Y, and Z. And I've explained that. So a husband could say to his wife, oh, you know that I love you. I told you that before. Do I, do I need to verbalize it again? Yes, you do. Yes, I need to hear those words. So yes, our leaders do need to stand up and speak out for what's right, especially in a moment where where the other side has come out. And we need to think about the roots of the problems. What What is causing some of these problems? What are the dysfunctional things that are going on that are, are making these problems develop in the first place? And my rabbi is a, a very big proponent of if you are silent, then you're tacitly agreeing with what's going on. And that it's not a, a shanda or an embarrassment to admit that you're wrong. It's actually a kiddush Hashem to say publicly, that's a problem. We need to fix it now. I mean, who doesn't respect someone who can say it shouldn't continue like that, that it can't be that way. We need to do some serious reassessing of how we're 
we're behaving and find ways to improve. I mean, that's really the Jewish way is to look within ourselves and to find ways to grow. And I think that the Orthodox community, unfortunately, there is a tendency or a segment of the community that does a little bit of whitewashing of history or trying to pretend that the rabbis we look to were always perfect, never made a mistake. Or I mean, the Torah all over the place talks about how our greatest leaders, their foils and trials. And I think we do ourselves a disservice by not acknowledging the areas that we need to grow and improve in. What do you see, and maybe you've already answered this with that description of what you're currently doing, but what do you think is the next chapter, the next frontier for this organization, for your movement? Right now, we have three arms to the organization. We have our content creation arm, which is pushing back at the media when they don't do a nuanced enough job in reporting us, confronting stereotypes about understandings about mitzvot, then also showing how mitzvot and Torah is relevant and meaningful and actually adds to a modern life. That's part one. Part two is this advocacy arm to try to stop the bad before it happens, before the headlines are made. Let's actually be good and not just try to look good. And part three, we actually accidentally started attracting some of the people that were leaving the Orthodox world. So there's been a rise in these OTD memoirs, the Orthodox memoirs, the tell-all ex-Hasidic stories where these people unfortunately grew up with great dysfunction and as much media attention as we try to get to highlight the positive and they don't want to hear from us, when these people tell the stories of how horrible their observant Jewish life was, the media can't get enough of it. And what we found out was that for a lot of them, they don't actually want to leave observance completely. They just want to live in a less insular community. They want to live in a healthier home in a healthier situation and so a couple approached me even though I thought I was breaking down stereotypes about Orthodox Jews to non-Orthodox Jews I discovered that I was breaking down stereotypes to Orthodox Jews as well well they had not been learning the same things that we had been learning a very fear-based approach to God not seeing how science could work within Judaism a fear of the larger and secular world and so we developed a third branch of Jew in the city called Project Makom which helps the people in this community find their place in orthodoxy. There's an organization that helps them leave if that's what they choose, but there was no one there to help people make pathways into other observant communities. Not everybody coming from there wants to become modern orthodox. Some people want to go from ultra Hasidic to modern Hasidic. That's all they want to do, just a slight tweak. So what we found is that they need help readjusting to someplace new. Where they started was too closed off. They'd like to enter a new community, but there are cultural and educational and career and differences that they don't know how to adjust to. Mm. Um, and so we have built out this programming to fill in those gaps. That sounds like a project worthy of a podcast of its own. Fascinating. I'd love to hear more about that maybe at a later time. Just in closing, Allison, I know that you've circling back to the people that you've gotten to know and that you've highlighted. I know that you've been linked almost synonymously in a sense with one particular celebrity, Mayim Bialik. And I want to hear briefly about how that came about and, and what that relationship means to the organization. And also I'm curious in general, who some of your favorite honorees, all-stars have been, who have been maybe the most interesting or surprising for you. Okay, so in terms of my, I watched her show Blossom when I was a kid. I had a Blossom hat. I had a crush on her boyfriend. Um, <laughs> I knew she was Jewish. She was a goody-goody, smart kid. So I really related to her. And then the show went off the air and I stopped thinking about it because I moved on with my life. And then in 2002, out of nowhere, just the idea came into my head what happened to Blossom. And I likened this random thought to Achashverosh, who's trying to fall asleep one night and just gets this idea in his head, I must look 
in the Divrei Hayama, my Maslok in the Chronicles of my kingdom. And he discovers that Mordechai has saved his life and he goes to honor him and that sort of sets down the chain of events that end up saving the Jewish people. I have this random thought from nowhere, what happened to Blossom? I Google her. I see that she's become more observant. She has kind of moved from reform to conservative. She's studying Jewish studies and Hebrew in college. I'm working at Partners in Torah at the time. And I think to myself, I should probably call her, cold call her. And <laughs> of, most course. Of, my, of course, most of my ideas are like, I should probably get discovered by a Hollywood scout. I should probably start a worldwide Orthodox image makeover campaign. Most of my ideas are crazy, definitely to normal people. But for me, they seem normal. So I give them a try. So I'm searching around online for her number. And of course, after a little bit of looking around, I realize it's not listed because my Bialik does not want random strangers to cold call her to get Torah learning partnerships over the phone. And so I give up on the idea. And then four years later, she comes to Partners in Torah on her own and we get matched. Randomly. Randomly. Um, and I was told by my colleague that had interviewed her and said, I think you guys should get matched. I was like, do you understand that I tried to find her four years ago for me as a person who does believe in something higher than myself, but of course has my doubts. And I don't think that faith is a straight line, but if you have your ups and your downs and your peaks and your dips, whenever I'm in one of my moments of feeling less connected or feeling more doubtful, I go back to the story and I say like, it makes no sense. It just doesn't actually make any sense that you could try to sign up a random person to join an organization and then they come to you and then you get connected. And when I found out we were being matched, I was jumping, I was shrieking, I was doing <laughs> embarrassing things. And my husband was like, calm down. You can't act like this. She's never going to respect you. You'll freak her out. <laughs> don't be a fangirl. He said, in fact, don't even mention it because celebrities don't like fawning fans. So don't bring it up unless she does. So Mayim thought that I was this nice Orthodox girl that had never seen television before. Again, more stereotypes about sort of the community and a very extreme and broad brushstroke. So she didn't bring it up. She thought that her identity was safe. And then we learned a second time and she didn't bring it up. And I said to my husband, if I have to be my Bialik's friend and never talk about the fact that she's my Bialik, I'm going to die eventually. I can't do this forever. So after two whole sessions, he allowed me to uh, <laughs> reveal that I knew her secret. So I emailed her. I found it a few months ago. Great talking to you. Let's do this book next week, by the way. I know who you are, but no big deal. You want to talk about it? Fine. Not, not, whatever. And once the cat was out of the bag, I asked her if she had ever considered why God had made her famous. That some of us wanted our own show and we never got it, but she got her own show by her name. Had she ever thought what to do with that platform? And I didn't realize until a few years later, but this question drove her a little bit crazy. And honestly, when I asked it to her, she had been out of the limelight for about 10 years. She didn't really have a platform anymore. But as she was considering what the responsibility could mean, what she could do with it, suddenly she's back on the most popular sitcom on television. And suddenly she's using that platform now to talk about mikvah and modesty and Shabbos in a way that no one has ever done before. So I would for sure credit a lot of our notoriety and our content getting out there to her sharing it with her growing online following as well. And it's not even like I need to ask her to share. She reads our stuff, she sees our videos, and she wants to share because it's meaningful to her. And our learning together impacted her in a deep way. Her character on The Big Bang Theory, Amy Farrah Fowler, wears skirts because we learned modesty together and she decided that she wants to start wearing skirts from our learning. So it's pretty neat to see what we did one-on-one -on -one have this ripple effect now to all the people that she can touch.
Has that relationship persevered? Yeah, sure. We don't learn you know, weekly. Our, our weekly learning lasted for maybe five years, something like that. And she is quite the scholar with the PhD in neuroscience. So it petered off at a certain point. Life got busier. They'll, you know, are in touch regularly and consider each other good friends. And my family was just in LA a few months ago and we came over and she and her family stayed at our house a few years ago. And so our kids had met each other when they were younger, but being on other sides of the coast, it doesn't happen so often. So everyone right. had a nice reunion. And now my kids it's kind of more understand who she is. So they're like, we played with Mind Bialik's cat. <laughs> and again, the final question is other guests or honorees that have been really interesting, inspiring, surprising for you. Alana Wernick is the Emmy-winning co-executive writer and producer of Modern Family. She's now on uh, The Middle. She's religious from birth. She is one of the most hilarious people I've ever met. I would just sit in a room and just listen to her talk. I would just get a bowl of popcorn. Everything that comes out of her mouth is hilarious. She gets it from her father. He's also hilarious. So she's just so delightful to be around. And I think that she's a national Jewish treasure. She has so much talent. And it was really with her talent that she climbed in Hollywood, never having to compromise on her Jewish values. A couple of our other all-stars, a few of them have come on as board members. Max Azria's daughter, Joyce, from BCBG, has come on as a board member. Hani Newberger, who is the chief risk officer at the NSA, she manages 20,000 people there. She's one of our board members as well. Sarah Hofstetter, who is the CEO of 360i, one of the most heavily awarded digital ad agencies out there. So as a budding entrepreneur myself, or social entrepreneur, I learned that that's the term for people that like to build things but are sick and don't want to make any money doing it. So that <laughs> having these really strong, amazing women on our board as mentors is such an incredible thing that I got to share them with the world. And now they get to be in my inner circle to help shape and grow this organization. I didn't know that I was getting that when we made this video five years ago and started, but it's really been both personally and professionally such a wonderful opportunity. Well, it sounds like it's created a tremendous resource for the community and for the Jewish world at large. And in many ways, like I started with, I'm inspired by it. And in many ways, this podcast, I think, is inspired by that same notion, that same aspiration. So thank you for embodying that in so much of your work. Allison Josephs, thank you for joining us. It's been a great honor and look forward to watching this organization continue to grow and spread that wonderful light. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.